2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards to faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy and righteous word. We pray that you'll grant us faith to believe in what it says, that you'll help us to understand it and obey what its teachings are. And may we, Lord, have full confidence that this is the word of truth, the gospel, and that our life must be transformed by your power, by your Holy Spirit, and by this precious word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This letter that Paul has written to Timothy, he's writing to a young pastor, a pastor who needs to know about the situation that is before him, presented before him as one in the ministry. Well, in chapter 3, by this point, he comes to describe in contrast of terms. He describes in terms of what's wrong with the current age in the first section, that's verses 1 to 13, and then in contrast, how he should respond to that in verses 14 to 17. What the situation is, what the dilemma and problem is, and then what the resolution is, and how to maintain the faith in the midst of these difficult times. Verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The last days began with the first coming of Christ. The last days are between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. He's, God the Father spoke to us by His Son by the Incarnation and His public ministry. That's when the last days started. We know that the last days continues until the return of Christ. 
because the apostle in Jude, in Jude, he explains, Jude verse 18, that they were saying to you, the apostles were saying to their disciples, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Jude 18. Well, in 2 Timothy, he's describing what's going to happen between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Now, people might say the verses and the sins described right here in verses 2 and following are true of all ages, true of all eras, all time periods. That's right. It is. But what this assures us is that this will indeed occur. In other words, the world is not going to improve. It's not going to become better. It's not going to evolve from a primitive state to a more sophisticated state in terms of its spiritual condition, its moral condition. That's not going to happen. Amen. In fact, difficult times will come, perilous times, times that are very dangerous and destructive for the people. And the Christians need to be aware of this so that they can take a stand, that they can be soldiers of Christ, that they can withstand all the onslaughts of the enemy. And the enemy will be the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse 2, he describes the sins of our age. For men will be lovers of self. They don't love God. They love themselves. They don't think of God first and His glory first and loving Him first and showing that love by loving their neighbor. The first and greatest commandment is love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and might. And the second greatest commandment, love our neighbor as ourself. Mark 12, 28 to 34, Jesus describes these are the two greatest commandments. But shirking that responsibility, rejecting that, they want to love themselves. They are narcissistic, they're self-centered, they're egotistical. This is what they want. They don't want God and to love God by loving their neighbors and especially those in the church. They don't want to do that. They'd rather pursue their own interests in their own way. They will also love, be lovers of money. Lovers of money. They don't use money and love God, but they love money and use God. That's the way people are who are lovers of money. They love to um, have money and to use money for their own selfish interests rather than loving God. But Jesus says it cannot be this way. Jesus says there must be a rejection of it. In Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or possessions, material possessions, money. You cannot serve God and love God and mammon at the same time. You either love one and hate the other. You cannot have both. You cannot love both. It's impossible according to the Bible. People don't admit this, but this is what the Bible asserts. People don't admit that they love money, but their actions, their words, their pursuits, their ambitions, selfish ambitions, show that. That's characteristic of people who do not know God and love Him. They are boastful and arrogant. They boast about their own abilities. They boast about their own wisdom, their own power, their own riches. Jeremiah warned about people like that in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23, he warned us 
not to be this way. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. People will boast of their wisdom, their power or might, and then their riches. They boast of these kinds of things, and these things are useless. They're useless in the sight of God. They're worthless and vain. They don't earn eternal life. They have nothing to do with spiritual matters. What we should boast about is knowing the Lord, that the Lord has saved us, the Lord indwells us, and the Lord desires us to live for Him and for His kingdom. That's what should be on our mind, not who we are, but who God is. Arrogant. They are arrogant in that they have this uh, hubris or pride within them that they cannot humble themselves, then they will not submit to a higher authority, that is to God himself ultimately, but it shows in the way that they treat other people and the pride with which they burst out against other people. They are arrogant or proud in that they will not listen, they won't keep quiet, they won't submit their minds to the mind of Christ in the word of Christ. They won't behave that way. They would rather speak their opinion. They would rather say what their greatness is and their attitude will uh, spread like a cancer to other people. These are arrogant people. This is the way the times are. They won't submit themselves humbly to the word of God. They don't want to know what it says. In fact, they think that if you submit yourself to the Word of God, that there's something wrong and deficient about it. They are so arrogant with their own ideas that they won't listen to what the Bible says. And some of them will say that explicitly to your face. Yeah. I didn't come to you for you to teach me the Bible. I didn't come, for you, come to ask you this question for you to show me what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says, but it doesn't work. Those words have been uttered. I know what the Bible says, but it doesn't work. It doesn't apply. It's irrelevant. These are arrogant people. They're also revilers. There are many people who are revilers. These revilers are those who speak evil or slander. They speak wrongly of authority. They speak wrongly of the things of God. They disdain it. They utterly despise it. And they will malign it. They'll do so openly, sometimes secretly. This is the way they are. They will revile the things of God. That which God considers holy and righteous and exalted, they abase it, they put it in, in the mud, and then those things that should belong in the mud, they put on a pedestal. They exalt those things. These are the kinds of people who are revilers. They don't know what to say and how to analyze and assess the matter. They turn things upside down. They revile. As it says in... Jude. In Jude, he describes these people. Jude verse 8. Yet, in the same manner, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, 
the Lord rebuke you. The people here are basing their beliefs on fictions and, and feeble uh, ideas, and they reject authority. They are so brazen in their revilement that they revile angelic majesties. They are so presumptuous that when an angel is there, a good angel, they w want to fight with the good angel. This is the way the people are. They have no respect for the things of God and the authority of God, but instead put it through the mud. They are also described in 2 Timothy 3.2 as being disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. In the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments says, Honor your father and your mother. Honor them, which is repeated in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 also repeats this commandment, to honor or to obey. But people who don't understand authority, children who don't understand authority, who do, do not understand respect and honor, they are disobedient to their parents. This is where they should first be formed and conformed to the way that uh, is good and right for orderliness, for respect and honor, it's first found in the house. When it's not found there, then they, they end up going elsewhere to the classroom or to the uh, employer or in the military or in the place of government. And there they are disobedient and subversive. They don't care about authority. They just do whatever they want. And they think everybody has to live for them. But this is first seen when they are small children, yeah. when they are disobedient to parents. This is the way people are, when, even when they're young. It does not need to be taught to the children, typically speaking. They don't need to be taught how to be rude, how to be unkind, how to hit their sibling, uh, how to say uh, no even to their parents. They don't need to be taught that. It happens naturally. This is what happens from conception and birth because we are all born in original sin. So that shows itself, and it shows itself in the family. And then there are many parents who lead them on and spoil them and don't curb their behavior, don't teach them the Bible, don't read the Bible to them, don't memorize the Bible with them, and so they end up being rebels and, and reckless in society as well. This is the way people are, disobedient to parents. They're also ungrateful, which is not unrelated to the previous statement. They're ungrateful. Many people learn ungratefulness from their childhood. They get everything served to them. They don't have to work for anything. They think that they are entitled to any and everything, whatever their whims and wishes are. They think that they should receive them. They are ungrateful people. They don't realize the difference between them and their neighbor, or them and the one who lives in the other neighborhood. They don't know the difference between what they possess, what they have with their own parents, even if it's a little, what they have in comparison to people in other places, both in the United States and around the world. They have no idea of reality, absolutely no idea, and it is an ungratefulness that manifests itself in selfishness, in self-centeredness, and in demands they won't work, they won't be grateful, they won't say thank you. People, uh, many people do, do not understand how to say thank you. They, they are ungrateful. They, uh, and not even just say it, but also not even show it. Show gratefulness to someone else. Whether we're dealing with physical and material things, 
things provided for us or even spiritual things. They're ungrateful people, unholy. If they're le leading a life the way that the, is described in verse 2, all of this is unholiness. Right. Unholiness in terms of disobeying the commandments of God so that they don't consider God as a holy God, even though the Scripture says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And the Scripture says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14 to 17, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. This is necessary, but people don't want it. They don't want to conform their life to the life of Christ. They don't want to do that. They would rather live their life according to their own desires, according to their own fancies. That's what they want to do. Therefore, they continue in unholiness. Verse 3, they're unloving people. Unloving. We saw earlier that if they are lovers of self, they're going to be unloving towards other people and especially toward God. The first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love God with our whole being and then to love neighbor as uh, oneself. So th those are the two greatest commandments. But they don't express that love in that way. They just love themselves. And in a sense, the people are, who are unloving people, who just love themselves, they are insane. Because they don't realize that when they're just loving themselves, they're doing harm to themselves. They don't realize it. They don't understand reality. And they don't understand what the Bible says about how they should be loving other people. Not only do they not understand it, they reject it, and they think that their way of thinking of love is better and greater and superior to God's way of thinking of what love is. This is the way people who are unloving are. They also mischaracterize what true love is. They will define true love in this way or that way. Often it's based on a romantic idea of love or feelings and emotions or whatever makes them feel comfortable rather than what the Bible says what true love is. The Bible describes true love in Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5, 27, 5. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Verse 17. Iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. When iron sharpens iron, there is some friction. But ultimately, they sharpen one another after the, the friction. So love that's concealed is not good and true love. It's better to have open rebuke, which is true love, than the kind of false love that is concealed and covered. And then also verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. A, when, a, a, a true friend will wound you, but you know that the wound was necessary because you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't listen. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. There are people who kiss, shake hands and hug, and say all kinds of flattering things toward one another, but they don't really care. They don't really care about each other. That's not the way it is. True love 
is biblically defined. Then verse 3, 2 Timothy 3.3, 3, they are irreconcilable people. Irreconcilable. There's nothing you can say to them to convince them that they need to humble themselves, they need to repent, they need to reconsider, they need to step back and look at the big picture. Nothing you say to them will convince them. In fact, there was a man named Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25, Nabal was married to Abigail, and she described her own husband, she described her own husband, she, she was a godly woman, and he was an ungodly and wicked man. She described her own husband in these terms. She said, in 1 Samuel 25, 25, Please do not, do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And earlier it said that uh, he's such a worthless fellow that nobody can talk to him. Nobody can talk to him and reason with him. He won't simmer down. He won't calm down long enough to listen to somebody giving advice. He's irreconcilable. He did wrong to the messengers of David, sent them away uh, in humiliation. And David was so incensed at that that he was about to come and attack them and kill them, even though he had done many good things for them before. But Abigail intervenes and says, no, no, I wasn't there. I didn't hear what happened. I heard about it afterward. And now I'm trying to spare you, David, from shedding innocent blood. Yes, Nabal is a worthless man. And the, the name Nabal means fool or folly, uh, foolishness or folly. And that's his name. Somehow he obtained that name. <laughs> and with that name, that's what characterized him. That's what characterized him. Nobody can talk to him. He's irreconcilable. You're not going to get anywhere with him. But then Abigail sends a gift and gets David to calm down, and David does not shed innocent blood. But this is what happens. People are irreconcilable because they just will not listen. They won't keep quiet. Verse 3, they are also malicious gossips. Malicious gossips. They like to share sensational stories about other people. They love to say it quietly. They love to whisper. They love to go with their friends in a corner and talk about other people. But they do it with malice, with evil intent. They don't do it in order to find a way to help that person. They say those things in a way to destroy that person and to bring that person down and to make other people not respect them, not love them, not give them attention, not talk to them. They're malicious. They have evil intention. This happens both with men and with women, more often so with women, but it still is a common problem. It does not matter what the sex is of the person. Without self-control. No self-control. Self-control is described as one of the fruits of the Spirit. From Galatians chapter 5, 16 to 26, from there, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us gives us the ability to restrain ourselves, to control ourselves, so that we're not indulging in our passions and lusts all the time. 
He is the one there within us, giving us his power in order to practice self-control. So that our minds don't think and, and, and think uh, or, or wander off in, in uh, the bypaths of sin. So that our mouths are not out of control. We're able to restrain our tongue and also our actions. Uh, where our feet go, what our hands do, what our ears listen to, what our eyes see. We have to practice self-control. Unbelievers do not have self-control that is controlled by the Holy Spirit. They have self-control that's usually a matter of fear of punishment. Fear of punishment. That's how unbelievers think. But believers, they are thinking because of the Holy Spirit that, yes, I know God is a righteous God and a God who has indignation every day. And I know that there's a day of judgment and I will be standing before him one day, therefore I must practice self-control. Also, we practice self-control because we know what pleases God, right. how to love him. The Bible describes what self-control is and how to practice it in order that we might please him, we might love him, and that he might shower his blessings and grace upon us. Verse 3, they are also brutal people. Brutal. They are brutal or vicious people. They stay calm and cool often when they are around their own friends and when they're doing their own things. But when anybody speaks up against what they're saying, immediately the worst of them comes out. They will call Christians all kinds of base and vulgar names that they would not call other people. They, they will not call abortionists and homosexuals and any other kind of sinner. They won't call them certain names, but they will certainly call us those names. They will make us into objects of ridicule and even mistreat us physically, monetarily, fine us, imprison us. This is the way they are. They are brutal people. Haters of good. Haters of good. All that is good and righteous comes from God. James 1.17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Everything that's good comes from God. That means that everything evil comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in this case, the people of the times, they hate good. And in fact, they'll call the goodness of God evil and they'll call their evil good. They turn it around. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, he describes these very people. Isaiah 5, 18. Isaiah 5, 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say... Let him, that is God, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass, that we may know it. They do this uh, sneeringly. They're, they're jeering against God. Verse 20. The answer. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. He's talking about drunkards. 
23, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. This is how they hate good. They turn everything upside down, calling their things good and God's things evil. Verse 4, they are treacherous. Treacherous. They are not faithful. They're not people or men of integrity. They will not keep their promise. They betray others. What they will do, they will pretend to be your friend, but then behind your back, they will commit treachery against you. They will stab you in the back. People are this way. People who are unregenerate are this way. They will not be faithful and die for you. We, we say, I would, I would feel safe with so-and-so in a foxhole, or I would not feel safe with so-and-so in a foxhole. People will say, I, I have your back covered. And sometimes they mean it, and sometimes they don't mean it. Those who don't mean it are the treacherous people. They'll say that, that to disarm you, but when they have a suitable time in their minds, they will use that knife and stab you in the back. They're treacherous people. Reckless. Reckless. They don't consider that which is good for protection and safety in regards to spiritual things, godly things. They are reckless. They don't care. They think that everything will be just fine. They think that if they follow a certain path, that they won't fall into sin. They think they are beyond sin or beyond that particular sin. They're reckless in their pursuits of the Christian life. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think that you're okay and everything is safe and fine all around you when it's not. Don't be reckless about that. Don't be reckless and careless. In fact, protect yourself, put up guards, and warn other people about the danger. If you don't protect yourself and warn other people about the danger, then you're just a reckless person, spiritually reckless. Nobody should trust you. Nobody should follow you. Conceited. Here, he comes back to a, a synonym for arrogance or boastfulness. Conceit. I am better than everybody else. I know better than others. They, everybody should listen to me. They, they don't deflect their praise. They, they don't send people to the Bible, to the Word of God. They always want people to talk to them and consult them. They won't show people God and His Word because they think they are great people. They think that they're just fine the way they are. They think that God deserves, or, or they deserve, to have God give them an automatic ticket to heaven. Right. There's no need for them to repent from their sins and believe in the gospel of Christ. No need to believe that the Son of God came into this world to die on the cross for sinners so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. No need to believe in any of that. I'm fine just the way I am. And God, He's going to open the doors of heaven very wide for me. There's going to be a big parade for me at the gates of heaven. That's the way they think. They think of themselves that way, conceited. Verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He returns to a common problem that is loving pleasure rather than loving God. They look for any kind of sensual pleasure 
whether it's for the eyes or the ears, the hands, whatever, they look for these sensual pleasures and pursue those and indulge in those things rather than loving God. They don't have any pleasure in loving God. They have no delight in loving God. What they really want is their fickle and, and fleshly senses titillated, amused, day by day and moment by moment. And they're very imaginative in this. They ha some of them have a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of money, but some people do it with money and some people do it without money. And some people steal money and steal possessions in order to obtain money and these things. They are very imaginative. How can I have fun today? I just want fun. Life is about fun. We only live once, they say, so have fun. Well, what about we only live once and there's a day of judgment. We're going to face God one day. Amen. And we need to know what's going to happen upon death. Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Uh, or what other uh, alternatives are there? And let me make sure I've got the right position on that. And if they love God, they would do so. But they don't, usually. They love pleasure. Verse 5. And some of these people are in the church. Yep. Are within Christianity have Christian names, are pastors, ministers, clergymen. Many of these people, verse 5 explains. It says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They hold to a form of godliness. They are pretenders. They feign faith. They come and they do certain religious activities. But whether it's in the pulpit or in the pew, they come and do some religious activities. They have a form of godliness. They have the shell. They have a sugar coating. But really in the core of their being, they don't believe it. They don't believe it at all. There are some people who are atheists and who come to religious services. But they don't tell other people that they are really atheists. They won't even tell their own wives that they are atheists because they don't want to upset their wives. But this is the way they are. They have a form of godliness. And this form of godliness also shows up in the pulpit. In the pulpit, there are many around the world, not just in the United States, not just in our locality. Everywhere around the world, there are people, men, and nowadays many women, coming to the pulpit as ministers of the gospel, and they say they believe the Bible. They say their beliefs are Christian beliefs. They say that it's in conformity with the history of their own denomination. They say all that, but they don't really believe all that. They reinterpret the Bible, which means misinterpret the Bible. They reinterpret history, which is misinterpret history. They reinterpret what the founders of their denominations said about why they started their denomination and what truths they stand for, both theological and moral truths they stand for. They say that they are in conformity with them, but they're really not. They don't believe it. They slightly here or there, deceptively here or there, they change it. There is no true godliness. There's just a form of godliness. And many people, they are dazzled. They are dazzled by the form. They're dazzled by the form. Well, how could a minister be wrong? Well, how could he, he who's wearing this robe be wrong? How could he who studied and did a master's degree, how could he be wrong? How could he who studied and did a PhD, how could he be wrong? He must know what he's talking about. 
He, he, he read that verse in the Bible. I haven't read the Bible, but he's read the Bible. And so he, I'm, I'm going to deal with this expert. No. What we should do is read the Bible ourselves Amen. and test everything that comes our way. That's right. Have a sincere, humble desire to know what the Word of God says. And you listen to people talk. And to the extent that what they're saying conforms to the Bible, then believe it. And to the extent that what they say controverts the Bible, reject it. Reject it. That's what should happen. But many people see the form, and they are dazzled, and they are disarmed by this form. They're, it's the lights, it's the smoke, it's everything else that happens in a spiritual sense, and sometimes in a literal sense. These things happen, and people think, oh, okay, that's fine, and that's good. But those are the same people who deny its power. They deny the power of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. There is power in the gospel. The power in the gospel is to change a person from being dead to alive. For change a person who used to love himself and live for himself, now he lives for the glory of God. He lives for God himself. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel can uh, aid someone overcome this or that sin, this or that nasty habit, sinful habit, help him overcome that and transform that person. This is the power of the gospel. But the people who have the form of godliness, they said, no, no, no. No, there's no power there. In fact, we know what the Bible says, but we don't believe that because it doesn't work. It's irrelevant. It's unimportant. It was meant for that period of time, not for our period of time. It was meant for those people because they were more primitive and backward people, but not for us because we are intelligent, sophisticated, technologically advanced, so on and so forth. We have the best of, of knowledge and degrees and institutions today. They didn't have it. So those people, yes, but they had to believe what, the, what is in the Bible. That was the best they could do. But us, we, we are better and different, and we've got new and improved ways. It's not just on the package of a product, new and improved. It's also written on the doors of many churches, new and improved ways of doing God or doing church. That's what they're about. So they deny the power of the Bible, the powerful Word of God and the Spirit of God. What should we do with those people? Verse 5, avoid such men as these. Avoid such men as these. It does not say, make friends with them and see how you can learn from them and then hope that they learn from you. It doesn't say that. Yes, we do need to evangelize, and we do need to find those who are humble and teachable people. There's no doubt about that. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people who are so hardened and blatant in their sin that they have no desire to listen and to obey, to hear the gospel. In fact, they want to influence you, and they want to drag you into the mud. They are in a snake pit, and they see you up there, and they want to drag you down into the snake pit. That's the way they are. When that situation presents itself, 
That's when we should avoid them, have nothing to do with them, and, and warn them upon departure. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am clean. From now on, I am going to the Gentiles. Your blood is on your own head. Right. I told you the truth. You wouldn't listen. Now I have to go to other people. And meantime, God will deal with you. May you repent, and if you don't repent, the day of judgment awaits you. And it will not be a pleasant day. Right. Meantime, avoid them. A time will come when you have to avoid them. Otherwise, they will drag you and your own children, your, your wives, your children, everybody into the mud and into the pit of hell. Verse 6. He describes their, their tactic. Verse 6. For among them, not necessarily all of them, but there are plenty of them, among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They like to go into households. They like to find weak women who, who see the, the dazzling package and think that the contents are very good. This is what happens. They go and they exploit weak women weighed down with sins. Weighed down with sins. Sins of emotional, uh, emotionalism. That is, they are fixated and, and controlled by their emotions rather than reason and the word of God. And even by the authority of their husbands. They won't listen. Husbands and fathers, they won't listen. These are weak women weighed down with sins. They have their own desires for acceptance. Uh, they want to be attractive to others and especially to other men. That is a common problem. Men generally want the attraction of many women, and women generally want the attraction of many men. We have to all fight that. Right. But when a man comes into the household, who's, who's not the father or husband, when a man comes into the household and he's got a dazzling package, he's got some very, very well-prepared presentation, and he comes across as very kind and smooth and, and gentle, who knows what he's talking about, who's uh, winsome and charming. He comes into the household that way. This is the way many false teachers come. He's not just describing salesmen. Salesmen can do this, right? But he's describing spiritual salesmen. Spiritual salesmen do this kind of thing, and they trap these women weighed down with sins. The women, in some cases, they realize that their sins have not helped. Their sins have brought them down and their families down. But they then come and uh, encounter somebody who enters into the household and says, well, this is the way to overcome sin. Right. So they are enticed that way and entrapped. However, they are led on by various impulses. They are impulsive people. They don't have control over their feelings and emotions. They are impulsive. So, with that impulsiveness, people know that. Other men know that. And, and even other women know that. They know that this is the way it is, so they exploit it. They exploit it to their advantage. Verse 7, they are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They are learning. They are learning, and this is the way many false teachers are. They will cite the Bible here or there, and make people aware of some things in the Bible that they've never known before, never heard before, but they will twist it. They won't tell 
what those passages say in context. They don't encourage their hearers to get their own Bible and to read their own Bible and make sure that they read it from Genesis to Revelation, cover to cover, for the rest of their life. They don't encourage any of that. They want those people dependent on what that spiritual salesman is saying at the time. And read our literature. And only read our literature. Don't read anybody else's literature. Don't only read our literature. We know this happens with Mormons. This happens with Jehovah's Witnesses and various other cultists. They do that. They say, read our literature and listen to our people only. Don't read anybody else who might contradict us. And don't read the Bible yourself and master the Bible from cover to cover. Don't do that. Don't read it yourself. Don't study it yourself. Study it only to the extent that we refer to it. And that's the way that they are always learning. They're always learning. But they are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Coming to the knowledge of the truth here is a synonym for salvation. Amen. It's a synonym for salvation. Look at 2 Timothy 2.23. 2.23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Coming to the knowledge of the truth is something God grants. And when God grants it, the person comes to his senses and is not enslaved and entrapped by the devil anymore. People who are enslaved and entrapped by the devil are those who are unbelievers, lost and still in darkness. So the people think they are growing and and becoming uh, those who understand salvation and know God, but not really. They never are able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then verse 8, there will be opposition. And opposition is what highlights verses 8 to 13. Opposition to the truth, verses 8 to 13. But just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. He mentions these two names, which are not named in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, or in that chapter. Not named there, but... In the the Jewish translation called the Targum of Jonathan, an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Targum of Jonathan, these two names are present. They mention that the Targum is not just a translation, but it's also a, a very brief commentary from place to place. There it's mentioned. And so this was commonly known among the Jews that these were the two main magicians of Egypt that opposed Moses when Moses was confronting Pharaoh. This, these were their names. They opposed Moses, and eventually, when they opposed the truth, they were exposed. Were they not? They were defeated. The curses came on them, the punishments, and the, the people of Israel were able to escape Egypt, and the Egyptian army was drowned in the sea. So, they... This is what what will happen. They oppose, but they will be exposed. Notice, too, they are men of depraved mind. They're not sincere. They're not authentic. 
the Bible doesn't describe sincerity or authenticity as being a virtue in and of itself. It doesn't matter if an unbeliever says that he is sincere or you think he's sincere. It doesn't matter. They have a depraved mind. They show their depraved mind by what they say and do. So no matter how much a false teacher says he's authentic, transparent, honest, sincere, no matter how much he says that, he's not that if he's opposing the truth. In fact, he has a depraved mind, a corrupt, perverted, twisted mind. Even if he says it with a smile. Even if his whole sermon is glowing with a bright smile. It doesn't matter. He has a depraved mind. And he's rejected as regards the faith. People think, well, these false teachers, they get some things wrong and some things right, but we can't say they are completely unbelievers, that there's, there's no way we should completely reject them. We can't do that. We just have to pick and choose whatever we like about them and then reject whatever we don't. But the apostle says they are rejected as regards the faith. Completely they're gone. They're lost cause. So don't consult them. Don't listen to them. And verse 9, But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. In the end, there will be punishment. Sometimes God gives us tokens and examples of the day of judgment punishment by punishing evil people in this life. Sure. Like he did with Jonathan and Jambres, Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army and all that and the people of, uh, of Egypt. All those people, they were shown to be wicked and evil and God showed it clearly in the face of all of Israel and Moses. He showed that. Sodom and Gomorrah is another example. Right. He showed by his destruction of those two cities what he thinks of sexual perversion. He showed that. And that is an example of the Day of Judgment. Jude says in Jude 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Right. Eternal fire punishment that's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes in this life, but even if we don't see it in this life, in the life to come, there will be eternal consequences. So their folly will be obvious. God will display it in front of all of us. In contrast, what should we do? Verse 10. But you followed my teaching. The apostolic teaching, which was faithfully based on the Old Testament, correctly interpreting the Old Testament and the teaching of Christ, which confirmed the teaching of the Old Testament. Paul's teaching was not his own teaching, Galatians 1. Paul was taught the gospel directly by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Right. So Paul's teaching, the apostles' teaching, the other apostles, they all came from Christ and the Old Testament and by the illumination and guidance of the Holy Spirit. His teaching is not his mere human teaching. That's not what he means. His conduct. You know the way I lived. You know the way I lived. I didn't exploit anybody. I didn't steal anybody's property. I didn't uh, go around um, with, with a, a big bag of money 
I didn't go around doing those kinds of things. I didn't go around with the women and commit adultery and, and flirt with them and things like that. I didn't do anything like that. You know my conduct. You know my purpose. I was resolved in my purpose to per- fulfill the faithful preaching of the gospel, to teach the whole counsel or purpose of God. This is the way I lived. You know that. He says so in Acts 20. Acts 20, 25. And now behold, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God in the Bible, he presented to the people, his hearers, so that he's guilt, uh, guiltless, innocent of their blood. He released himself of his duty. Now it's up to them to obey. You know what my purpose has been. And I've been doing this in private. And I've been doing it in public. I did it from house to house. And I did it from synagogue to synagogue. I did it in the marketplace. I did it everywhere. You know the way I was. You know my purpose. You know my faith. You know that I've taught that whatever is not from faith is sin. And that we need to increase faith. Increase faith. Nothing pleases God unless it's done on the basis of faith. Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. Now these three abide, faith, hope, love. Faith, hope, love, these abide right now. They remain now. We must increase in faith, hope, and love. Patience. Patience is also a fruit of the Spirit as well as love. And so patience, 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 patience. Yes, we will come across obstacles, afflictions, turmoil, persecutions. We will come across these things, but we have to practice patience. Wait on God. Wait for God to intervene. Wait for the kingdom of God to come in the full sense. Be patient with the the situations and circumstances of the world. Don't be demoralized. Don't say, well, nothing is working out, so I'm going to go retreat, and I'm going to just be a loner. I'm not going to see God anymore. I'm not going to read His Word anymore. I'm not going to be around the people of God anymore. I'm not going to do any of that anymore, because it's all useless. It's it's not going to help me, because nothing has helped so far. They don't have patience. Patience and endurance, or perseverance. Also love. You know the Apostle Paul loved people. He loved people by preaching the gospel faithfully to them and living a godly life before them, not exploiting the people, but preaching the word and living as an example. He showed what true love is. And he actually said, he had the ability to say, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I do Christ. Imitate me as I do Christ. Verse 11, Persecutions, sufferings. Persecutions and sufferings. When he was in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, these are Acts 13 and 14. In Acts 13 and 14, when he went to these cities, some people believed, other people disbelieved. Some people followed him among the Jews and the Gentiles, and others among the Jews and the Gentiles, they rejected him, slandered him, threatened his life, persecuted him. He had to deal with all this. He had to deal with all this because as he was being faithful, the persecutors rose up against him. This is natural. This is what will always happen. 1 Peter 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. This is normal and natural for the believer. The more righteously he lives, not, not in a wrong, unbiblical way, but according to biblical righteousness, the more he lives that way, he speaks that way, the people around him will hate it. The unbelievers around him, they will hate it, they will persecute him and inflict him with suffering. But he endured them all, so I'm not talking in a vacuum. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not talking in a vacuum. I don't have my uh, cushy and cozy office yeah. without anybody around, anybody to say anything wrong to me or harm me physically. I'm not doing that. I'm not in an ivory tower. I have experienced it. I was there. Yeah. I was there when the people were attacking me. So I'm speaking to you as somebody who has gone through that very experience that I'm encouraging you, Timothy, Timothy, you who have timidity, I'm encouraging you, don't be that way anymore, but increase in godliness. I've done so. God's used me. God had to work in me and change me. And He's calling on you to do so also. And the hope and the promise is, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. God delivered him out of many, many trials. One such list, the most exhaustive list, is in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 20 to 30. 2 Corinthians 11, 20 to 30. But every other chapter, and it's usually every other even chapter in the letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, has a list of Paul's sufferings. He had to show to the Corinthians that he was qualified as an apostle. One reason why was that he really believed what he was saying, and he suffered for it. The false teachers do not suffer for what they say and do. Right. They enrich themselves. They have more and more pleasures. They have a greater and greater following. They keep telling the people who live in sin, peace and safety, everything's just fine between you and God. Don't worry about it. We don't need to talk about sin. Sin is a, is a bad word. Don't, don't talk, use that word. We don't use that word in our church. That's the way they are. And they don't suffer. They, they don't have anything happen to them. But Paul was a true apostle. He suffered. But when that happens, don't be discouraged. God has the ability to deliver people who suffer righteously out of those sufferings. Twelve. Is this only for Paul and Timothy? Is this life only for Paul and Timothy? And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's for all of us. Amen. It's for all of us. Even Jesus said in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 to 12, that it would happen to all of us, not just the apostles, but we will share the sufferings of Christ. We will be a partaker of it. It's for all. If we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we'll be persecuted. Not could be, not might be, not a possibility, but will be persecuted. It may not happen... It will, and it will not happen the same with each of us, but it will happen. Yep. It'll be more here or there, in different forms here or there, but it will happen. 
And this is the way it will be until the end. Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They'll go from bad to worse. There's no improvement, in other words. It's going to become worse and worse between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. This is the way evil men and impostors will be present. Now, verses 14 to 17. It's not a hopeless situation. We know the Lord will deliver us, as it says in verse 11. And we also know that those who follow the the Apostle Paul's teaching and life, that there is a good end. But in the meantime, how should we live our life? Meantime, how should we live? Where are we going to receive encouragement? Where are we going to be consoled and and, uh, guided with true wisdom to live our life? 14 to 17 explains. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Continue in what you know to be true. And you know these things to be true, and you're convinced of these things because you've known these things from childhood. Since childhood and now to adulthood, you know these things to be true. So who taught Timothy? We know at least three people who taught Timothy. First is in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. 2 Timothy 1, 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Lois and Eunice taught Timothy from childhood. And we know in adulthood that the Apostle Paul taught him. He knows the way that his grandmother and mother taught and lived. He knows the way that Paul taught and lived. He knows that it's true. It could not be false. They are not pretenders. They're not faking it. They, so he should stick with it. Why abandon something you know to be true? Will we ever abandon the truth that 2 plus 2 is 4? If we do so, it's going to be dangerous for us, will it not? And anything else that we know to be true, a fact of life, we cannot abandon those things. He's telling Timothy not to do so. Now, what was it that they taught him? Did they teach their own wisdom? Verse 15 says, The sacred writings. Verse 16, all scripture. He means the scriptures primarily that he had at the time, the Old Testament. But it is the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation that we need to know. We need to know. The women of the house need to teach their children, and also the men of the house need to teach their children. It has to happen from both of them. And in those households, and many of us do have um, households where we have the husband and the wife, the father and the mother, the father and the husband needs to lead to teach the family the scriptures. In the case of Timothy, his father was a Greek. From Acts 16, we learn that. His father was a Greek and likely was not a believer. And this is why his mother taught him. But otherwise... It rests on the men of the house. Teach your children the Bible. Read the Bible to them. We all know how to read. Sure. We all know how to read. So just read a chapter a day. 
in the morning or at night, whatever time is convenient for your family, get the family together and just spend a couple of minutes reading a chapter. Start with that, a chapter a day, read, and then just pray about what was just said in that chapter. Even if you don't understand everything, you can understand something about a, a given chapter of the Bible. And just pray accordingly. Pray for the needs of your family, whatever your friends and relatives are experiencing, whatever is happening in your church and country, whatever is happening. Pray about that briefly. It doesn't take longer than five or ten minutes. Do so. Do so and start with your children at a young age. And also memorize the Bible with them. Memorize, especially the easier verses. Start with that and move on to more difficult ones. Now, why is this important? For two reasons. 15 says that the sacred writings are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament has wisdom that leads to salvation in Christ Jesus and the New Testament. Sure. Salvation. So teaching your children about the Bible and the contents of the Bible and reading the Bible is for their salvation. Right. How are they going to be saved otherwise? Are they going to be saved by your insight and brilliance? Are they going to be saved by reading some other book? Are they going to be saved some other way? No. The primary way for salvation is right here. Yeah, the preacher might explain and, and reinterpret and say something so that your child understands, and that's fine. That's what I mean by the primary way is right here in the Bible. The preacher might rephrase it, and it might click with your child, and then he says, yes, I believe the gospel, and that's fine and good. But where did the preacher get that truth? Where did the preacher get those words and phrases? Where did the preacher get those concepts? He got it from the Bible. It's the Bible that they need to know and read for their own salvation. Do we love our children? If we love our children, read and teach the Bible to them. That's the first reason. The second reason is 16 and 17. It's for our sanctification, our walk, our growth, or our holiness. 16 and 17. All Scripture, not just the New Testament, all Scripture from the Old to the New is inspired by God, given by the Holy Spirit for teaching, reproof, or confrontation, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Bible has all of this. All that we need for our practical life to live our life, to know the will of God, to please Him, to conform our life to His life, to have orderliness and, and sobriety in our own situation, personal life, marital life, family life, church life, societal life, whatever it is, preaching the gospel, sending out missionaries, whatever it is, everything is found here in the Bible. Right. And we all need to conform to it for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. It's adequately here to equip us in every good work. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.